Hello, this is Charles Wiz. Tony Silva. And we are Two Teachers Talking, a podcast about education, teaching in Japan, teaching language in Japan. And so, Tony, it's getting to be、uh, that time of year where we start classes. How are you doing these days?、Mm, busy, of course. <laughs> busy, stressed. And、yeah. you? <laughs> <laughs> I think you've said everything right there. Yeah. Well, you know, it's been, you know, I was, I was in Chicago for a few weeks and that was really nice.、Um, got really lucky with weather. Only had to shovel once and、uh, did a little bit of racing and came out and it was, it was March and it was 74 degrees at 6 p.m. in Chicago. So it doesn't get much better than that. <laughs>、uh, then it'll stay in Korea. And, That's right.、Uh, you、uh, went to Seoul. Yeah, I was in Seoul and the DMZ for a short hop, three or four days. Very interesting. Yeah, I was blown. The blown. I the DMZ was really interesting. Obviously, <laughs> obviously, obviously. But、uh, more, more to the point, like with the podcast, I was, and this is Seoul, and it is kind of the main tourist area. But I was knocked off my feet by the、uh, number of people who spoke English. And how well they spoke English, and how natural they dealt, naturally they dealt with、um, foreigners. Very, As, very, very different from my normal experience in Osaka. So it is maybe in some of the apples and oranges, but I was, I was not really prepared for that. So it was、uh, very、um, much like what, I, what, what my experience has been with Tokyo.、Hmm. Maybe. Anyway, very, po- very positive impression. Really,、um, v- not what I expected at all. So I was very impressed. Well, good for you. Good Thank for you. you, Korea. Yeah. Welcome back. Yeah, I'm back. Yeah, I didn't go anywhere. So I've just been working away. Some, so I was talking with someone and they said, So are you enjoying your vacation? And I was like, I <laughs> said, <laughs> <laughs>、so、I'm putting in 12, 14 hour days at home. Well, that's what I did in Chicago, too. <laughs> right. Yeah. So,、um, any teacher knows that. I think we've talked about this. In the sure. Sure. Most people think teachers have a really great life, all that vacation time. And I'm like, I have absolutely no idea what people are talking about. But anyway, so this is our 73rd episode, and we have something special today for、yeah. the audience, right?、Um, what we're going to do is we're, this is the first part of a two part. Interview with、um, Paul Nation. Paul is one of the foremost researchers about vocabulary. In fact, some people will actually credit him with bringing vocabulary research into the foreign second language acquisition and the teaching of English as a second language or as a foreign language. And one of the really good things about Paul that I really like is that he's a very teacher oriented researcher. And we interviewed him because, number one, <laughs> I know him from my master's program. And when I was working on a PhD, he was my advisor. And, you know, disclaimer, I didn't finish the PhD. And Paul was、uh, always interested and in, always emphasizing the importance of the、uh, application of the research, the usability of the research. So that's another reason why we. Are interviewing him is that Paul has a lot of insights and knowledge about actual teaching and how that research actually ties into teaching. So you're not getting just someone talking about research. And he's also a very, I think, balanced person. And the third point, I think, Tony, is you want to t- explain an idea that Paul's going to talk about in the beginning for people who aren't familiar with that. Okay, yeah. We talk about him being、um, you know, one of the core.
uh, foundation researchers in contemporary uh, second language acquisition. Um, and uh, some, uh, one of the, his main points, and it does come up in the first half, and something that some people might, might not be familiar with, one of his key ideas is something called um, that he calls the four strands. And uh, it comes up in the discussion, but without much amplification. So uh, when, he, when, they, when you and he talk about the four strands, what um, you're referring to are, one, meaning-focused input, um, meaning fo and two, meaning-focused output um, of any kind, right? And language-focused learning, that would be, you know, dedicated, you know, outside classroom generally, and then fluency development, okay, which is what kind of what most people think of first when they're in the classroom. So we're talking about the four strands. Those are the, the four things, meaning uh, focused input, whether it's reading or listening, uh, meaning focused output, speaking, writing, language focused learning, and uh, fluency development. So those are the, the, the four strands that uh, he defined in what you and he mentioned in the discussion. Okay, it's a good point. And for, um, I think other people use the terms, um, Rod Ellis has used this term too, I think, of focus on form, focus on meaning. And so Paul, I think, kind of broke it down a little bit more and then also added that fluency, that there has to be fluency practice. So I think that's a good way to introduce it. So should we get started? Let's go. Let's hit it. And thanks again. Go to Paul Nation for spending time with me. And, uh, and so hope that um, our audience um, enjoys this. So without further ado, here we go. So thanks a lot, Paul, for spending some time with us. Um, again, so what are some of the things that either an experienced or expert or even novice teacher can do that will immediately you know, have some positive results in the classroom, especially on the learning side? Yeah, well, th there's a sort of there's sort of two levels of answer to that. One one level of answer is to give a general sort of answer, and then the, there's very specific things that teachers could do. The general answer would be, and here I've got to beat my own drum, would be to read a book like one that I wrote recently called "What Should Every EFL Teacher Know," because. I think the the most important thing that teachers can do is to educate themselves. There's an enormous amount of research and knowledge out there about teaching English as a foreign language, and teachers should really get in touch with this in the easiest way that they can. And so you pick up a lot through teaching and through experience, but there's a lot to learn which comes from research and study. And teachers have to make sure that they're keeping up with the research and study bit. So that's the sort of general answer. The more specific answer would be, you know, if I had to say, well, what are the three or four major ways you could bring about a big change in your students' learning? Number one on my list would be set up a proper extensive reading program. And there's tons of guidelines and guidebooks and everything to tell people how they can go about that. But it, it's really a very... Uh, effective change that teachers can make in the program and it actually reduces their workload and the reason it's such an we know it's such an effective change is there's very good research on this which shows that if you do have a really good extensive reading program oper you know, occupying a substantial amount of time on a course 
then learners make very, very large steps in their learning of the language. Hmm. Well, that's an interesting thing because you, you said that the teachers have to keep up with the research, but that's also part of the, the difficulty is there's so much research out there and where should a teacher start? That's a real major problem, I think, for a lot of people. And the other thing is that the extensive reading program, there is a lot of research for that. And so your feeling is that that is probably the most important thing that teachers can do right away is really focus on the extensive reading and get some real results from that. Yeah, because, see, the research by Ellie and Mungabai in the Pacific showed that uh, when they ran a, a eight-month-long eight English course of four hours a week, uh, then their learners made the equivalent of about 15 months' progress by, through having a substantial part of that as extensive reading. Okay. And so, you know, introducing that, change in a program can make a very substantial change in learners' proficiency levels. And these were extensive reading programs, correct? Yes. So yes. they did they spend any time focusing on reading skills, um, teaching no. students how to read? No, it was just make sure that students are working with graded readers at the correct vocabulary level. Right. And just have right. them read as much as possible. And you've talked before about in with graded readers and um, reading for, for example, for fluency and what kind of coverage you need for these different levels. Mm -hmm. These people were, so when they were having the program, this is completely reading for fluency or what kind of coverage did they have? They didn't have very good coverage. And in fact, one of the weaknesses of the research is that they didn't, they, did, they used books which were written for young native English speaking children and they didn't use graded readers. And I, I think that was a sort of a, I think it was a mistake on their part, but in fact, they still got very good results. So, um, so they didn't actually even test the students for vocabulary level. They didn't look at coverage or how many words a student would know and what percentage of the vocabulary in the book they would know. They just kind of gave them books without actually checking. That's right. And they still and got I, positive results. Yeah, and I think they could have improved it if they had have checked and had have got books which were much more suitable to their very, very low level of proficiency. These learners were very low proficiency learners. In, you know, and they were also very poor people. They were the children of sugarcane cutters in Fiji, you know, out in the rural areas. And so, you know, we're looking not at a privileged group at all here, but a very, a very uh, underprivileged group. Okay, so... If you were going to change it and improve it, then let's say for some teachers, let's say in Japan, where we have more resources and we're able to check our students for vocabulary and we have access to graded readers, the what kind of, in terms of the coverage, what would you be suggesting? Should they be reading for just fluency or would you be mixing it up or would you be yeah, having... It should be a mixture and the, the mixture should be roughly two to one. And that means they, about two thirds of the graded readers should be just fractionally beyond their present level. Okay. So only a small step beyond so that they can read them without having to rush to a dictionary in every, for, every, for a word in every sentence or something like that. But they should read them where occasionally they have to look up a word in the dictionary perhaps, but where they can guess much of the time. Well, I think, you, I'm sorry, your work with, um, with Laufer was also figuring out exactly how much they, sh they should go over their own known vocabulary level, correct? 
Yeah, yeah, sort of. There's other research on that too. Right. So what I'm saying is, let's say I have a student and they have, they know the first 1,000 words and the second most frequent 1,000 words. So they know those 2,000 words. We now have another list. We have the academic um, word list. But what would be the amount that the reading level should be above their vocabulary knowledge? Do we know that number? Um, yeah, well, we largely know it through common sense, I guess, and uh, there is a bit of research on it, but, but the research is, is now increasingly questioned, and I think it deserves to be questioned, but I, don't, I think the research is still not too bad, but it should be, the, the rule of thumb is roughly about one word in 50 at the most should be unknown, so that if you take five lines of a text, the learners can read five lines and only meet one word which is unfamiliar with them. And that's because of they're going to get tired of going to the dictionary and looking up every word yeah. and frustration yeah, too, in general? Yeah, it's just too heavy. I, I even think one, in, one word in five lines is a bit too much, and I'd be more like one word in ten lines. You know, because I think it's important that they do large quantities of reading and therefore, if the vocab, unknown vocab load is lighter, then that enables them to do larger quantities of reading with less burden on the vocab. Okay. Now, that's for two-thirds of their extensive reading. The other third, in terms of time of their extensive reading, should be fluency reading, where they read books which are way beyond, uh, below their level, easy, really easy, but they just get faster and faster at reading them. Or they reread books that they've read before, but get faster at doing it. And the ratio should be roughly two to one. So you're actually saying students should reread something they've already read before? Yeah, sure. And that's going to help them because they're familiar with it. They've already been exposed to the vocabulary or any new vocabulary items. They're getting repetition. They're seeing things again. And they're also, they have the basic background knowledge and the scaffolding on the book to understand it. Yeah. And I've been doing some sort of thinking and writing recently on, you know, you know, is it a good idea to read a book in order to learn vocabulary? And should you reread books or read new books, you know? Hmm. And there's sort of good arguments either way. When you reread a book, then you get repetitions of things you've already met before. And we know that half of the different words in any book will occur only once. And so when you reread a book, you're giving those words another chance of being learnt through the repetition. And then you, you make multi-word units have a greater chance of being learnt because, you know, once again, you reread a book and the same multi-word units are met. So again, that's the importance of repetition and meeting words and meeting new knowledge again. Yeah. How many times do you think that somebody's going to be on average? For, so if I'm setting up a class and I'd like my students to be exposed to some new vocabulary, new words, new multi-word units, what's the, how many times does it seem that those people, students, learners are going to have to meet those words before they actually <laughs> see it? I know that's a great question, isn't it? No, that's the holy grail of vocabulary studies. Uh, it really is, isn't it? The answer to that. And the, the general answer is the more the better. <laughs> the more the merrier, right? Yeah, but the figure, the figure is... Well, there's, there's research which indicates that, you know, you probably about at least seven times and probably more like 10 or 12, 
but some words require even more repetitions to be learned. Yeah, I know that from experience in Japanese. I think it took me something like 40 times to learn the word for vending machine. I just couldn't get it right. <laughs> oh, I see. I learned that one on first go, Chuck, so that's the difference between you and me. Well, <laughs> one would hope, Paul, that you would learn words more quickly than I would. Okay, so the read, so right away, the first thing for whether you're experienced or novice is go in and get this gr a graded reader program established. So let's say I'm teaching a general English class. Yeah. Um, what percentage then how do I as a teacher being assigned to teach four skills in a general English class let's say in a Japanese university what percentage of the class then should be spent on reading or should I just assign the graded reading for outside of the class or do you think it has to be part no, of a classroom no, no. component yeah you've got to have a classroom component and the reason at least initially, but probably in a continuing way, you need to have a classroom component because learners won't do it. Or on their own. won't do it on their own. And um, th how much should, of, of the general class should be on it? My sort of rough calculation going back to the idea of the four strands is that it should be roughly about three-sixteenths of the course time. Now that sounds a rather precise, you know, measure to say, you know, wow, three sixteenths, this is getting very precise. But I was trying to figure out the percentage. Like About a quarter of the time in a course should be spent on learning from input, which is just fractionally beyond your level. Half of that time should be listening and the other half should be reading. Okay. So that means that one quarter of the course time is on input, half of that time, one-eighth, is on reading. Okay, so that's one-eighth. Now for fluency development, about a quarter of the time in a course should be spent on fluency development. And that fluency development should be spread equally across the four skills of listening, speaking, reading, writing. So that means one quarter of one quarter should be reading fluency development. So that's one-sixteenth. And so one sixteenth plus one eighth equals three sixteenths, and so that's what I reckon should be a, roughly the amount of time. And suddenly the now, math makes sense. Yeah, and so that's three sixteenths. See, that, that that's just under a quarter of your course should be spent on extensive reading. And some teachers will say, "Oh gosh, that's you know, I'm not going to do that," because this extensive reading really means the teacher sits down, keeps quiet, and lets the learners get on with it. Doesn't interfere. Doesn't teach. Now, in Japan, you have a brilliant example of that. There's a guy who owns language schools in Shinjuku, SEG language schools, who, who offers a course, you know, the kids come after school for three hours in an evening, and I'm not sure how often they come, they either come once a week or twice a week or something like that for the whole year. And he, he basically sits them down and for at least an hour and a half of that just says, choose your book and read. And the teacher sits quietly at the front while the kids get on and read their books. And their parents pay a lot of money for this. And the reason they are happy to pay the money for it is that the entrance results, university entrance results of these kids is very good. And the kids like it. And some of them choose to spend the whole three hours solely on reading. 
And when asked, would you do this reading at home if you didn't come to class? They say no. <laughs> do you enjoy doing it in class? Yes. So, so you yeah, know, yeah. I think it's evidence for it from Japan, which is very convincing. Okay, how is um do is there any research or results that show how that that's impacting pro production? Do you do st are students more um, likely to be speaking? Do they have a tendency to speak up more in class, or is it more just their ability to read and understand what they're reading? My guess is it's largely the ability to read and so on, but it it does give a good basis for speaking. But I I part company with Steve Crash and here. I think that in order to be good at speaking, then you have to practice speaking and you have to have a, a strong speaking component in the course. You know, and this ties into your four strands. Yeah. So, which is it? It's the program you just talked about, I can see how it works very well because that fits in very well to the Japanese testing system and the university entrance exam. So that will make pe parents and a lot of students very happy. So, yeah, well, well, what they do though is when they, I said they have a three hour class, then one and a half hours is simply on extensive reading, and the other one and a half is on spoken interaction with a native speaking teacher. Mm hmm. But some choose to do the whole three hours extensive reading. But the majority then do the other half with spoken interaction and so on. Okay, so there's an interesting thing here because this kind of looks at certain aspects of student-based learning, student-centered learning. A lot of teachers would be, I think, uncomfortable giving that kind of decision-making to a student, having the student actually choose how they spend their time or on what area they spend time on. How would you address that? Well, it's a it's sort of teacher guilt, I guess. It, it's sort of the answer. I mean, I've always been interested in the answer to that because, you know, the the research showing extensive reading is very effective, is has been around for a long time, and yet teachers find great difficulty in taking it on board and actually doing it. And I think that the reason that they don't, the major reason that they don't take it on board and do it is that they believe that learning requires teaching. And I don't believe that at all. Uh, most learning occurs without direct teaching. And so teachers really, f and teachers feel guilty if they're just sitting there doing nothing and the learners are just getting on and doing the work. You know, they sort of say, well, what am I getting paid for? You know, I should be doing something here. And so I think that's the sort of obstacles to, to implementing extensive reading programs. It's something I do because you know, I work in my program and I get to work with students who want to become English teachers, want to become junior high school English teachers or high school English teachers. And one of the things that I try to really almost drill into them in a certain way, so I'm being kind of hypocritical here, is that there really is no such thing as teaching, that an educator or a teacher really can create opportunities for learning, environments that are properly sequenced, but it's the students are doing the learning and that the teacher really needs to back out of that process and give the students more time to actually engage in learning. And one of the things I see though is that students will still go to kind of this teacher-centered lesson. You think that's primarily guilt or do you think it's habit or is there some way that we can learn how to give more space to the students to give more time? I'm wondering what's going on there. I, I think it's habit as much as anything. 
um, because, you know, when I heard about this school in Shinjuku, which, you know, where they spend half of the time and the parents quite happily pay good money for this, you know, I thought, well, I don't really believe this. So I went along to see. And, and, um, and the students really like it. And so it's, I think it's a matter of, you know, they've never really had the opportunity to see that learning can occur through these different ways. And I think there, there has to be a sort of a, a change in attitude towards this. And the change in attitude, I think, will largely come from doing, plus the enthusiasm and the commitment of the teacher to doing it. But, but teachers have to win themselves around. Do you see this happening in New Zealand or in other countries as well? Or is this specific to certain countries, the focus of, of teacher? Even in, even in New Zealand, I know the very, very experienced and well-educated teachers on our English proficiency program bulk at the idea of allowing three-sixteenths of the course time for extensive reading. Okay. They sort of think, ooh, you know, no, no, we've only got a limited amount of time and we've got to use it the best way we can so we have to be teaching, you know. And so he, so I think it's a problem all through the world of, of, you know, the worry that if you don't teach, students won't learn. Well, what about the the supposedly new idea of the flipped classroom, which gets bandied about a lot? and. It's an interesting thing for me because I was a lit major as an undergraduate and we would do our reading and prep and homework was preparation for the next class. So now it's a very common or popular idea that teachers should be flipping their classroom, that using technology and that students should be preparing for the next class. And then they would come in and actually be doing the work. So that kind of fits into what you're saying, or do you find that it's hit or miss or it's a little bit off what would be yeah, your response I, I, I don't i don't see the changes as really being big changes you know i think a lot of what teachers do uh, uh, are good things and but what they need to do is to make sure that they've got a balance of the different opportunities for learning and they can just set about introducing these one by one and you know from what i think is the most effective and then you know work their way down and so i don't think you have to take on a new you know completely new view of anything or things like that you've just really got to say look we know extensive reading is really good and, and teachers need to re read up a little bit about it and and maybe maybe hear other people talk about it and maybe see some good programs in action and then they need to get on and try and do it. But, you know, they should let that occupy a smallish part of their course. And then when they feel comfortable with it, start increasing it up to, you know, the level that I've suggested. And then they can move on to some other thing. So I don't see this, you know, you have to have a big change or anything like that. I think you work with what's there and gradually improve it. And what's nice about what you're talking about is that kind of fits in with respecting or giving more time to introverted students. There's been such a push for collaborative learning and group learning, and people are beginning to talk about that this is great for an extroverted student, but introverted students might have some difficulty. So this actually creates some time for the introverted student within the classroom. So, Yeah, that, that's sort of a bit like learning styles, and I, I'm sure there are learning styles and 
and things like that. But you have to regard learning styles as a starting point, not as a, a, a restriction. And learners might have certain styles for learning or certain attitudes to learning, but if, if they're counterproductive, then they better do something about changing their style or, or certainly adapting it to, to, to get better results from what goes on. So, you know, I think learning styles are, are things which, you know, are starting points which can be either maintained or adapted, but they're not, they're not a restriction you have to limit yourself to. Learning styles are kind of up in the air, aren't they? There's some real questioning about whether they actually exist or not, or what the evidence is for those. So you used the term, what was it, attitude, learning attitudes. Yeah, maybe. I wasn't using it in any technical way. Right. But I just, I just think that people go about learning in ways that they have experienced before. And there are other ways. And they should learn about those other ways and have a chance to try those other ways and be encouraged to use other ways if they are proven to be effective. Because I know that often if I'm trying to learn something, that's not, it might be my preferred way to learn or it's how what I'm used to learning, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily the most effective way or no. the best way for me. No, and, and, and you should you should be getting some guidance on that and you know and then be in, be in you should be encouraged to try other ways and if you find no the the old way is still the one that seems to work best for you and so on okay fair enough go back to it but at least you know the menu should be should be available so a teacher then should be providing students with different ways of learning, different models of learning, and should they be actually giving students some exercises and helping them try to use those? Well, I wouldn't say necessarily providing different models. I should They, they should be providing effective models of learning. Okay. And then learners, you know, see see whether they're comfortable with that and can do that or not, you know, and, and uh, then get some help to, to move towards those more effective ways. Do you have you know see some of the ways that Japanese students learn are very effective. Some of the rote learning methods which are used are highly effective, and I wouldn't want to see those changed, you know because there's a lot of research to support them, and I think a lot of and this and learners' experience show that they work too, but there are other ways too which you can add to that which are, which are worth knowing about well, which specific ones would you? recommend then what are you which ones are you talking about because most or let me rephrase not most but i know a lot of people who are teachers have a reaction against rote learning we yeah because you know basic current teacher beliefs and how we what we believe in the learning process so could you specify be you know tell us which ones are you talking about so we well, can see, use I, those I, I, i'm strongly in favor of the rote learning of vocabulary right and and that's using word cards and that and, and and in in Japan you can buy beautifully, you know, made word cards. No words on them yet, but you know, with a ring around them and they're all in a pack, because they're there to cater for this style of learning that many Japanese students and some teachers like to do. Um, and I and th th these are very proven effective ways of learning vocabulary, but they should only occupy a small proportion of the course. 
And so getting them in proportion is really important, but to abandon them would be ridiculous because they're very effective. But they just need to be, you know, not not overwhelming the whole course, but but there within the, a proper balance within the course. Now another another way is grammar translation. Everybody throws up their hand about grammar translation. I actually quite like grammar translation, but it shouldn't occupy more than about a sixteenth of the language course. So you're yep. actually suggesting teachers should include part of that. And this is in a basic course or more advanced? Because when you talk about the use of uh, rote learning and the vocabulary cards, though that's you're talking about for the first 2,000 words plus the academic word list, correct? No, I'd go beyond that. I mean, once learners know that and they want to expand their vocabulary, you know, there's still about... You know, to really be effective, to study at, say, doctoral level in a foreign country, or English-speaking country, you'd need to know about 9,000 words. So even once you know the, the high-frequency words, you need to get on to the mid-frequency words and start learning those. And a bit of rote learning really pushes that along. But it shouldn't be your only way of learning. It's just one part of, the, of a balanced program. You know. So... I, I've, I get the sense of the real important is balance is not just going one yeah. way and really kind of giving a mixture and a wide spectrum of different approaches, different kinds of input, different kinds of activities for students. Yeah, that's why I'm I'm a sort of I keep pushing the four strands because the four strands idea says, you know, in any course you should spend about a quarter of the time learning through input. You know, learning through reading and listening. You should spend about a quarter of the time learning through output, through speaking and through writing. You should spend about a quarter of the time deliberately studying and focusing on the language. And this is where grammar translation and rote learning play a role. And you should spend about a quarter of the time getting fluent across the four skills using the language that you've already learned. And then so when you look at that, that that's how you work out where the balance lies you know so if you say well rote learning a vocab where does that fit well that's in the deliberate learning part and it's one part of the deliberate learning part so it's one part of one quarter of the course you know so you know 16th <laughs> i'm into 16th <laughs> it's, yeah it's, it's one of those numbers that really makes percentages difficult <laughs> yeah so, but the four strands how would i'm thinking of someone who's let's developing a program running a program creating a, pro a language program at a school yeah. how would how could you get teachers to do the four strands the programs always have interesting issues and dynamics especially in terms of getting teachers on board and how coordinated it is and how yeah. um, structured what would you do I, I think it's fairly straightforward i mean all you do is you say well you know, we're, we're going to, what's, what's the traditional or accepted way that teachers expect that we're going to divide up our course and the way that they seem to be happy with? And they might be happy with it divided up according to skills, or they might be happy with it dividing up, a, you know, according to some other method. But then the program director has to look across and say, well, each of these various courses that we have, let's fit them into the four strands and see how much of the four strands they occupy and whether we've got a balance. 
And if there isn't a balance, then we better change the nature of those courses so that we do get a balance over the whole program. So it's possible to spread the four strands between classes? Oh, yeah. I, it doesn't it, have to just be within a class. You could actually or, spread it out well, over the classes. You probably wouldn't have the four strands within one single class in terms of a class hour or, or a class hour and a half or something. You know, I could see that, say, you have an extensive reading class where the learners just sit quietly and do their reading, and that's only got, you know, part of one strand in it. But that's fine, you know. And But in the other parts of the program, the learners will be getting the bits of the other strands. So it's important to realize that you're talking about overall exposure for the student, the learner. Yes. It's not yes. just in one class. So no. you have, so the program can actually use that as a way of structuring itself and figuring out how to exactly address issues of learning and what the learner's needs are. Yeah, well, in the book I mentioned before, I keep pushing this, but this is one of the books I feel most happy about having written. You know, what should every EFL teacher know? Um, the, the first chapter of that book is to show how you can split up the four strands across, you know, various parts of a program. But the whole idea is that, you know, you take the overview and you say, yeah, we're getting roughly about a quarter of the time spent on input through listening and reading, and we're getting about a quarter of the time where they're doing writing and they're doing, you know, real speaking and so on. And, uh, oh, we were a bit, we've got a bit too much of the language, you know, deliberate learning here. So how can we, you know, reduce that quantity a bit and give it to the fluency or give it to the input strand or something like that. That's what the program director has to do across a whole program. Yeah. What about a teacher who's working kind of in isolation? Let's say the program isn't coordinated. They've been assigned to teach a general English class. How you have 90 minutes, let's say college level university in Japan. Yeah. Would you then think that the teacher should as much as possible do those four strands within the class or no i i think the teacher the teacher could pretend to be the program director and to say what what are they getting in the other classes can i find out what they're getting in the other classes and then do that little exercise of seeing where they fit in the four strands and then saying well it seems to me that you know, they're really not getting much in the way of genuine input or they're not getting much in the genu way of genuine output. And then, therefore, in their, in their class, they could make up for that imbalance, you know. Okay. And what if the... But, but if you were completely isolated... This is what I then mean, I would, yes. Yeah, and you couldn't find out what the others were doing or anything like that. I would probably go the way of input and output and fluency development and not do too much deliberate study. Okay. Because I know that in Japan, most other classes will be focusing on deliberate learning of language. So we understand so that if you're alone, you're not having too much contact with other teachers or you can't really find out what's going on, then some time in the classroom for extensive reading is well worth the time. Yeah, and extensive listening and a bit of genuine speaking in would be good too. And extensive listening is 
kind of a development that came about out from the extensive reading programs and the research on that, correct? Um, yes, yeah, sort of. It, it's sort of there simply because, um, you know, re reading gets the emphasis in EFL programs because it's easier to do reading than to do listening, you know. But there are, there's now quite a lot of material of a semi-graded sort which is available for listening at a whole range of levels. And so now it's possible to listen to lots of, you know, get a lot of listening input. And it makes sense because that's how native speakers learn most of their language for their first, you know, nine or ten years of life probably. Mm. So that's, I guess, is one of those questions, right, is what is the difference between a classroom environment where you really don't hear a lot of the target language outside yeah. of the classroom versus, yeah. you know, that's the difference between EFL and ESL programs. It's one of the differences, or, yeah. And, well, not and, all and, of the difference, one does. Yeah, and, and it's, a, it's a really critical difference. And so that's why it's really important that there is this, you know, genuine input, you know, occurring. And it's not hard. It's not hard at all. It, the hard thing is for the teacher to step back and let it happen, you know, let the learners get on with it. The teacher's job is to make sure that the learners are motivated to do it, that it, there's the opportunity to do it and that the materials are there and that they know that, look, it's, it's reading and you're not going to have to answer questions necessarily or, or the questions are going to be fairly trivial and not difficult, but just quantity of reading is important. Okay, so this f spring I teach a first-year listening reading class, and I've always, I think the third time or fourth time I'm teaching it, and the students have to get a graded reader, and I give them time in class to read. They bring their books in, but they also have to read at home on their own. Yep. What about homework? Um, well, well, homework's great because homework just increases the amount of opportunity for learning. But, you know, it's got to be done. <laughs> and so, you know, that, that's why when I went to visit these, these classes in Shinjuku, it was quite interesting for me. And the, the guy running the school made a point of saying, look, you know, when I asked the students, would you do this at home? The answer would be no. And, 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 you know, showed how important it was to make sure that it is done in class. But I'm sure there are some students who do it at home, and there should be encouragement to do that. But in a way, it's so important that the teacher has to make sure that this, you know, input does occur. And therefore, you've got to have substantial time in class. If I was judging your class, if I was an inspector coming to see your class after it had been running, say, for four or five months... I'd be going around the students and say, how many graded readers have you read so far? Tell me the names of them. Which ones did you like? And if they said, oh, I'm halfway through one, and I'd say, is this the first one? Yeah, I'd say, well, hmm, not much of an extensive reading program there because they should be reading a graded reader at least one a week, you know. But, okay, so when you say reading a graded reader, and we haven't really specified a level yet, but how many total pages of a small paperback would we be talking about? How many pages would you be expecting students or think that students should read in a week? Or what would be the word to count? Okay. There's an article in the journal Reading in a Foreign Language in 2015 that I wrote trying to calculate that. 
and it depends what word level you're working at. If you're working at the 2,000 word level, say that you know the first 1,000 words and you've got to learn the second 1,000 words. Now, I'm trying to do this from memory, so I might get it wrong, but you probably need to read about a hundred to 200,000 words over the period of a year. Now, a hundred to 2,000 words is the equivalent of two novels, because a novel's about a hundred thousand words long. Now, when you learn the third thousand words, you've got to read about 300,000 words a year. That's another 300,000 words in order to get enough repetitions of those words. And it and I calculated, you know, if your reading speed was about 150 words a minute, then how many minutes per day would you have to read, you know, in a 40-week year, five days a week? It, it comes down to something like, you know, 10, 15 minutes a day at the early stages and can get up to about, you know, half to three-quarters of an hour a day, five days a week, 40 weeks of the year at the more advanced levels. So it's very manageable. Okay. You know, we're not looking at hours and hours here. We're looking at, you know, several minutes. What about someone who is in a in the in the Japanese university situation? They have fifteen weeks with their students, once a week for ninety minutes. Yeah. What would be a reasonable expectation for? So you just take that number that you gave, and then I guess divide it by about one third. You said about forty weeks, I think. But you were talking about yeah. every day or once a week or. Well, I, I just tried to work it out on school days, you know. So five days a week, weeks, right? Five days a week, 40 weeks of the year, you know, because I wanted to see would it be feasible for, you know, learners to actually read that amount? Would it be possible or is it, you know, more time than they, you know, they could afford to spend? It turned out to be very feasible. Um, if, if it's a case that you've got... Uh, I'd be probably still sticking to the same rate, but then try to encourage them when your class finishes that they should, you know, you, you'd want to demonstrate to them, to them that their vocab size has grown and their reading skill has increased. And then when your class stops, this is something they should try and keep doing at home, you know. What are some good techniques for that? Because the importance of feedback students getting feedback as well as the importance for the teacher getting feedback over where their students are is really essential. I think that's John Hattie who talks about just the importance of feedback for the teacher and how that impacts teaching and learning. What are some good ways to show students or to show students that their vocabulary is increasing? Should we be quizzing them and then giving them results or are there some other yeah, techniques? Yeah, I, 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 think, I think you should be giving them little vocab tests and showing that they, you know, they're learning more and getting better. And then also, I think I'm I'm a great fan of speed reading courses, and there are many free speed reading courses available on the web, and you can download from the web, and um, and then they can see that their reading speed is increasing. You know, a good speed reading course can double the reading speed of most students, and well, actually, all students we've we've actually shown as long as you know the teachers sort of making sure that they're engaging with it and they so they should be doing things like this which have concrete results and keeping some little record which shows gee i don't re didn't realize i'm getting better but actually now i am reading faster than i was reading before and i'm actually yeah i do know the first two thousand words now where i only knew a thousand before or something like that you know you've got to you've got to give these this feedback so that they can see progress 
Okay. And speed, I think with speed reading or the reading speed, that's a real easy one to do because yeah. the more they read, the faster they're going to get. That's just a natural development yeah. from that. And so you're suggesting maybe little quizzes so that they can see that they're learning more words or their vocabulary is improving. And that feedback loop is real vital. Well, I don't know if you you know the SRA reading boxes. Oh yeah, yeah, from my elementary school days. Yeah, yeah, same years same and years and years ago. I remember they had the boxes and there were the different colors and then Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And you used to have to color in, you know, when you move from level it was brown to green, but but being native speaking it was moving from I don't know amber to olive or something that were, they were hopeless for males who were generally colorblind. Um, but <laughs> that's a good point. Um, I didn't think about that. <laughs> but but you know people get quite a kick saying, "Oh, I'm now reading at level so and so," and so even if you don't give them a vocab size, you could say, "Look, you were reading books at the you know 400 word level. Now you're up at the 900 word level reading books and you seem to be coping really well with them you know and you could have something like that SRA you know where you you're moving from one level to another and they can see their progress through the levels right and that's very motivating mm. and also it takes into account different levels of student and it's differentiated learning and yeah, students sure. are responsible for their learning so it meets all the kind of it ticks off all the boxes of what we consider to be good teaching practices yeah, sure. But I didn't yeah. think about that. The SRA was like the first time that I had individual learning. Mm. That's going back yeah, a long time right. for me. Yeah, I remember those boxes. Those they were little and I, I, laminated cards. I guess your cards. attitude to those boxes is positive too, isn't it, or not? Well, I was always a, a avid reader. Yeah. So I can't I can't tell you what other people thought, but I just thought that it was really great to you know try to go, do as many as I could because that was a challenge yeah. for me, and I was really interested in improving my reading speed. I don't know what happens to somebody who doesn't have such a positive relationship with reading, though. I, so, but I know I had a positive attitude toward. I still yeah. remember them fondly. Yes. Yeah. So, do, so do I. And, but I think that you know the positive attitude is likely to come with success. You know, and that means you start reading at the right level, and then, you know, so that you do experience success. Well, I think that's an important point, Paul. That, um, and sometimes I think I forget that as a teacher that you have to provide up, or I have to provide opportunities for students to succeed some of them have not felt very successful in an english classroom yeah well i i used to ask learners i go into a class and say well how many books in english have you read from the beginning to the end you know and there were very few students who'd actually read a whole book right. in english and so the thrill that you can get even if it's a graded reader saying gee i've started this and i finished it and i understood it wow you know first time and and you want that sort of you know ex success to be there, and that's why learning English is such a got so great resources for it because there are several thousands. I think it's about must be five thousand or more graded readers available now, and some of them are truly excellent. You know, yeah. beautifully written. Yeah, I find that I actually enjoy reading some. I ask my student what they're yeah. reading. I'll take a look and I'll pick up the first page and suddenly find myself turning to the second page. And I think the students look at me kind of going, excuse me, um, where did you yeah. go? So there... Yeah, the, the Extensive Reading Foundation has a competition each year for the best graded readers. And it's worthwhile going to their website, just Extensive Reading Foundation, look it up on the web, and you can see what were the best readers for that year. And it goes back five or six years or more now.
And there's fantastic books there. Okay. Really good reads. So to just bring it back again, I'm thinking for teachers then. So in, let's say, the Japanese university system, you're seeing your students once a week. Have some part of your class, my class, let's say, and I have the students reading during the class. And then they're also supposed to continue reading outside of the class and try to have them do one graded reader a week is your suggestion then. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and that's not, you know, if you're a really low proficiency learner, the graded readers at that level are only a few pages long. So it's not a big ask, you know. It's not a, not a, not a, a big issue. Okay. And the more proficient you are, the longer the graded readers tend to be because you're at a higher level of graded reading you know, and the books are longer. So, and so, but even even then, it's still about a book a week. Okay, that's a that's a nice measurement. That's a really clear idea because it allows so to have a clear idea as to what to do and make that requirement. And so, the the less proficient readers are reading easier material that are shorter, and then the more advanced readers or more proficient readers get longer works, and everybody's kind of working along the same path. Yeah, I I went to a second. We were testing people, uh, native speakers' vocabulary in secondary schools in New Zealand, and at one of the secondary schools, they decided that for twenty minutes each day, every day, straight after lunch, the whole school would quietly sit down and read a book. Yeah, and so each learner chose the book that they were going to read, and they quietly read their book for twenty minutes, and then the regular classes began. And I sat behind a learner in the lowest class in the school and then started to calculate how what his reading speed was because I'd measure the time it came to turn a page and then I was roughly counting how many words there were per page. I worked out that with that 20 minutes a day, five days a week, 40 weeks of the year, he would be reading half a million running words a year, the equivalent of five novels. You know, and that was just with a, a fairly small investment of time in the school. But the school had decided that for the, these native speakers, you know, this was a really good thing to do. And I'm sure they were right. Hmm. What about in terms of graded readers and extensive reading? Any? What about tech? A lot of people like to use technology in the classroom or they're not too fond of technology. Or is it just this is one of those areas where a simple paperback just solves all the problems in the most efficient way? Uh, I'm all in favor of electronic reading. I do 90% of my reading now electronically. So I, I read from a tablet and, uh, you know, Kindle app on the tablet. And they're, they're great because, you know, I touch a word just to look it up and, and the meaning is there straight away as soon as I touch it. If I wanted to, I could get the meaning using a foreign language dictionary. And, you know, there's all of these these aids which are just so great for reading so oh, you know i'm in favor of technology but technology is just techniques it's just a tool it's just a tool and you but you know they're great tools right i find that almost all of my reading now is on a tablet and yeah. i just as you say i just love the fact that i can just tap a word and get yeah. the definition now i'm wondering though is that going to as more and more students start using tablets, let's say doing electronic reading, does that change the how many words someone's willing to look up within, you know, a page? You've mentioned one um, every fifty yeah. slides. Yeah, so that... it, yeah, it'd be interesting to see if it does change that because it's not such an interruption to the reading. Right. 
but you still wouldn't want it to be a lot of looking up because you really want the reading to dominate. You know, mm -hmm. if there's lots of looking up, you've moved from input to deliberate learning, right. and you really want to have that reading being input, not deliberate learning. Okay. But it, but there's you know nothing wrong with looking up, but you just don't want to be doing it all the time. Right. And if you're doing it all the time, you've chosen the wrong book. That's a, right. So I guess I should stop reading. And, and there, there are <laughs> schemes now, and and I think they're available in Japan, where you can subscribe for something like I don't know ten dollars a month or something, and be able to read as many graded readers as you like for that month, and then you pay your ten dollars for the next month, and you get access to as many graded readers as you like to read. And I think there's some. I, I think that's going in Japan. I'm not sure, but I know. Uh, an ex-student of mine was starting up a, a, a sort of business like that. This is um, X-Reader? Uh, it might be, Was it yeah. Paul, Paul Goldman, I think? Yeah, yeah, Goldberg. Yeah, yeah. Paul Goldberg, right. That's his yeah. X-Reader program. Yeah, that's gives, great. That's yeah. great because, you know, just for a, a few yen, you can have access to hundreds of readers, you know. Right, and I think actually you can enroll your students in that program, and it's actually less than buying a textbook. Yeah. So it's yeah. actually a very good deal for students to yeah, I, do I that. I just think it's great, you know. Yeah. Okay. Well, we've talked a lot about teaching and reading and classroom stuff. I'm wondering, classroom stuff, what a great word, stuff. Um, if I were, I'm talking to my students and they're learning about teaching in English language, what would you consider to be like the, the, the canon of research? What, you know, what articles should these students be reading to really get a great basis? So, for example, Paul, I always um, have my students read Pitt Quarter's essay on the significance of learner errors. I think right. that's really central. Um, and also so they get a sense of the history of the field and see yeah. how things have changed. What would be, if you were going to teach a kind of, that kind of class, what, would be, what articles would you suggest that you think would be really helpful and would immediately impact students as future teachers? Well, well I'd get them to read Ellie, uh, Warwick Ellie and Francis Mungubai's um, little booklet called The Impact of a Book Flood in Fiji. Right. And that's the one which I mentioned before about graded readers. That's only about 16 pages long. But it's very clearly written piece of research and very, very impressive. You know, they did a great job on that. So that that would be one of the things I'd get them to read. Um, there's an article by a guy called David Palmer on information transfer for listening and speaking, which talks about how you can get, you know, design really interesting activities for listening. And uh, that's in the journal English Teaching Forum from many, many years ago. So, and that's a very practical article, but just, you know, it's got so much going for teachers in it. Um, let me think what else now. Uh, hmm. it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question, actually. I think about it a lot. What would I recommend? Yeah, well, I, I've had to think about it a lot because I teach courses for for um you know teacher training right and, and i have to then assign reading for for teacher training so that uh you know they've they've got some homework to do while uh while doing i just I'm so just, you don't uh, give any reading time in your class <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> 
give them time to read the articles during I'd class. probably get them also to read read a one of the experimental reports on speed reading okay um there's there's a few of those around and uh but they, they would be they they're quite interesting to to uh, to read and then I'd probably get them some of the early articles on listening you know like uh the trouble is that some of these are a bit biased in the sense that the ones on listening tend to say, oh, all you need to do is listen, and then, you know, that that can be the whole course, you know. But but they have interesting arguments about, uh, you know, getting large amounts of listening going in a course, and, and that is as a way of providing uh, input. Um, and I'm just trying to think what else. Uh, I'd probably get them to read some article about the deliberate learning of vocabulary as well, just to show them that rote learning was worth doing and that there are very clear guidelines about how to do good rote learning. Yeah, I think that's a key, how to do it well yeah. really makes a difference. I think it's make, there's the book Making It Stick, which talks, and you, I remember in your courses, would talk about this, right, how much exposure, and I remember you once said that the most important time to go back and review something is right before you forget it. Yeah, that's right. So, so you'd want to have spaced learning rather right. than mass learning. And you want variation yeah. in the learning so you're not just doing everything all the time. So Yeah, that's right. And there are very clear guidelines for that, and the guidelines are fairly well established by research too. And, okay. and so it's possible to do bad rote learning and good rote learning, and, you, and you know, learners, uh, teachers should be informed about that. So maybe that's a good kind of article I should give my students. Okay, what about, um, is there any current research that in the last year that's really excited you that you've kind of like gone, wow, this is really thrilling? Well, Norbert Smith and his students have been doing really interesting research with eye tracking. And they've looked at, um, you know, students reading texts and they come across a word they don't know. And then the eye tracking equipment measures how long they focus on that word and compare it to the words they know. And then they try to see, well, how many times do they need to meet that word before they're focusing on it about the same amount of time as a known word. And I, you know, I was really quite taken with that research because it's getting a step closer than most research to what actually happens when we meet words in a text, you know. Mm. Their finding was, I think it was somewhere around about seven or so meetings. After about seven or so meetings, the learners were just focusing on the word about the same amount of time as previously known words, you know. But that research is still in its early stages. But it struck me that that was a really interesting methodology. Mm -hmm. And then there's some research that one of my PhD students did on deliberate learning, showing that deliberate learning can result in implicit knowledge immediately. Mm. And this is quite, I, I regard it as one of the biggest step forwards in the vocab field for many years because the previous belief was that if you learned explicitly, you developed explicit knowledge. And if you learned incidentally, then you developed implicit knowledge. Well, it shows that for vocab, that distinction is irrelevant because deliberate learning of vocab also results in implicit knowledge. And that's the kind of knowledge you need for language use. And so this is yet another piece of support for deliberate rote learning. Okay, so that was pretty interesting. Um, 
Yeah, and that's only half. <laughs> uh, thank you, Paul, for right. all, all that time because that is a that's a that's a that's a big chunk. Yeah, Paul gave us a lot of his time, and um, as I think you can see that I was really enjoying myself. I was, but having a real hard time, you know, really trying. It was amazing how difficult it is to interview someone. By the way, interviewing Tony. is really really hard. Right. Um, Mm. <laughs> but you did okay, great job. Thank well, you. I don't know about Thank you that, too. but um, okay. So why don't we throw it to you, right? Okay. Now, so your response is yeah. what you think. Yeah. One of the first things that came up that that, that caught my interest was like when you talked about looking for like some very very practical. Like talked about what can a teacher do. It was really interesting that his answer to that was set up an extensive reading program. And I was like, mm, well, <laughs> not many of us are in a position to be able to do that. But um, it did kind of underscore uh, what he considers the one of the very, very important elements of language acquisition is that extensive reading, which um, not, didn't I can't say that it really surprised me, but I was expecting a little bit more of a, given what I've read of his research and things, a little bit more emphasis on vocabulary. Uh, but yeah. uh, again, two sides of the same thing. Yes, the vocabulary comes from the extensive reading. Got it. But um, I, it was interesting to hear him over and over and talk about the importance of extensive reading. Yeah, I, I think you know, Paul comes from that vocabulary. But what's really interesting about him is that that's a real focus. But he's so knowledgeable about what's just going on in the field. And I like that part where he was basically saying, this is where you're going to get the best return on investment. But what I noticed when I was talking with Paul is that the way he saw language programs were, were I think, on a five-day-a-week basis. That's the general sense I got. And I was thinking that, you know, I'm teaching my students once a week for 15 weeks and then it's gone. And we've and talked about that. We've talked about that, yeah. God, so right. whereas you could see how I could see how five days a week there's that extensive reading program that the Oh, it must be incredible to watch, but I'm not. But Paul's, I think, response was about giving having the students read at home also works. But yeah, it's an interesting point. So, what else did you find? Um, well, part uh, related just to what you what you just said, I couldn't help but I got a sense that um, when he was talking about success and results, uh, he was focused a lot on. Of course, no surprise for research on measurable results, which is, of course, important. But you know, just for example, he measured the success of a particular program in Shinjuku um, on the students' performance on university entrance exams yes. rather than fluency. Right. And so mm, there's a, for me, I want that other piece that other bridge, I want to take, okay, so the, okay, the extensive reading helps them get into a good university. Oh, I want to see those kinds of, I want to see the research, I want to see the results, that it impacts their fluency too. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a, it's a good point. I think that when we were talking, the again, the feeling I got when I was talking with Paul was that he talked about that juku in Shinjuku. That sounds mm -hmm. funny, doesn't it? The juku <laughs> in Shinjuku. But that this there's no argument for a high school or a junior high school not to have an extensive reading program now. That you can Correct. go in and say, hey, look at this. It's going to benefit your students in terms of they're getting, you know, passing 
the university entrance exam. And I kind of had the feeling that that was part of the reason and rationale he was mentioning that because what's the biggest argument that occurs when people are asked to innovate in middle high school and ju junior high school and high school classes is that it doesn't fit into the testing regime. Mm -hmm. So that was my sense about that. But yeah, there's, I think, reasonably good evidence that fluency increases. We know that there's a lot of, you know, incidental vocabulary learning that, well, I don't know if it's a lot of it, you know, but there's some incidental vocabulary learning that occurs. Yeah, and I, I think it's also important to underscore that when, when he, in the discussion that, because we, we talk about reading, say, mm, a little bit more specific, specifically extensive reading, because um, the argument that you get, I hear so often in Japan is, oh, no, our students can read English and they can write English, but they can't speak English. And I go, <clears throat> no, <laughs> that's not the case. Um, but extensive reading and the importance of uh, reading that is easy enough. And you guys talked about it a lot. Like, you know, like, for example, in, in a, the reading passages the students get, whether it's, you know, higher level students, an entire book, or whether it's a, a shorter piece for lower level students, uh, to have it easy enough so they can read and they're not encountering more than X number of unknown words per line or per page, right? When you, you guys talk to that in great detail, um, what that magic number might be. Um, and that I think is really key uh, for a lot of different reasons. Um, you, you, and you guys talked about, and we and I have talked about, like for example, creating the opportunity for success in students who, um, especially we talked about. And you, thank you, you in, in your question, you were very um, directly guiding it toward like the the class that I'm going to be teaching, um, class of students who so far have not probably had much success in their English study. Uh, to create opportunities for them to be successful and to give them material that's easy enough. And when, you, when we talk about extensive reading, that's a key element. It's got to be easy enough so that they can read X number of words, lines, pages, books. Um, that's, where the, that's where the work comes in and that's where the success comes in. Uh, and the results, right? So it's mm. got to be easy enough. And I'm, I'm glad that... Um, you guys made that point because I think that's really important. Well, that's that whole point about fluency and a lot of the research that's been done to figure out exactly what, how would you define that? This goes back to Krashen's I plus one. And I remember mm -hmm. once I was talking with Paul and we were, it was in his class and um, I realized that the I plus one can actually be figured out. If you figure out a student's vocabulary level and the coverage of a text, you just have to add that, you know, extra couple of words per page. Mm -hmm. But I think Paul, mentioned that the easier the better and that his feeling was that you know once every only one or two words per page i believe is what right. he said right. was ideal and i know for a fact that it, it's true yes. but i also wonder about you know how is that going to change i think we talked a little bit about e-readers you know where you just have to tap the word and you can get it but right the idea of success and that shows you i think again where paul's interest is you have a researcher and he's so embedded in the classroom, the idea of the classroom. When's the last time you actually heard about a person who's not into effective measures or looking at effective aspects of a classroom or motivation who talks about the importance of success while tying that into real research? That was a real pleasure. That's one of the things I really like about Paul. 
Mm. Um, something else that came up in, in the discussion that maybe maybe explain a little bit about what it is. Um, you mentioned like Paul Goldberg's X reading, and I'll, I'll include a link on, on the uh, on our on our X reader. We've mentioned it's that X before. X reading actually. It's X reading. Okay. Well, so much for me. I thought it was X reader. Yeah, but it's X reading. Is is actually it's, that's the uh, domain name. Okay. But what is that? Um, it's a basically it's an extensive reading program that's online. And students subscribe. There's a, you can register a class and students can go on there. They can find readers that they want. They can read them online and it tracks them. It has questions and the teacher is able to find out exactly what they're doing. Yeah, so it's so actually a whole like it's, online it's, library it's a, of it, e-books, it's an extensive, right? Yeah, it's an extensive reading. It's an, on, it's an extens- online extensive reading library. With tools for the students. Students, students and the teachers and the teachers and there's a real some real nice tools for the teacher to be able to follow what students are doing i haven't used it i know of a couple of people who have used it and are continuing to use it um so it's that's the program that paul was talking about i think um paul goldberg um was did his masters maybe with paul i'm not exactly sure mm. so that's where that came from great Great, great. Yeah, I was looking at it earlier. It looks um, kind of interesting. I, I've got to go back and, and look at it some more. Right. The, the other part that I really enjoyed, uh, the part of, of, of this um, this part of the interview, um, and one of the, I, I guess it's a problem, uh, implementing um, extensive reading programs is uh, the advice and the necessity for teachers to step back <laughs> and how hard it is for a lot of us to do that to step back and get out of the way and let the students learn um, that you don't need to be actively quote unquote teaching in order for learning to take place. And um, I, he talked about teacher guilt and um, how different pro- <clears throat> in different programs, uh, the increased uh, student autonomy in terms of, you know, their choice of, you know, what to read and how much it's, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how that leads into actually more learning rather than less. So I enjoyed that part a lot. Yeah, the less is more. Well, I think that's been an evolution in our teaching over time, don't you think? You talk yeah. so much less than when you started. Yeah, we, when we talked about ourselves, we had a discussion about what we've learned and what mistakes we wouldn't make before. It's like how, um, especially a, a younger, when we were younger. or, or That's a long we, time ago. That's a long time ago. <laughs> and a less experienced teacher kind of gets a, a panic if they're not doing something all the time. It's, it's like, oh, my class is falling apart. I'm not doing anything. It's like, no, that's okay. You know, a, lo- a little bit longer leash. And, yeah. Well, it's nice to hear that coming from someone as knowledgeable about the field as Paul is and to hear that you know, suggested and recommended again. But you're right, the teacher guilt was an interesting. I remember while we were talking a little bit about that, I always thought I have it backwards as usual. Now I feel guilty when I talk too much, <laughs> right? I, it's like, oh, I talk too much again. And so that was interesting. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Again, but it was interesting how it always came back to the classroom, don't you think? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, as you said early on, and when we were before we were setting up the interview and things about how his research is always so focused back onto classroom and practical application and things. Yeah, it's really great if you're a actual, you know, classroom practitioner. Mm. 
you don't have to think for you know it's it's nice Paul does the thinking for you <laughs> you don't say hey how do I apply this to the classroom it's right there yeah and as he said it's as he said it's it's not hard <laughs> I love that I love that that Kiwi accent right? yeah it's not hard. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I, uh, I actually wrote that in my notes. And the, the, the last thing, <laughs> the, the last how thing, hard is it? it's not hard. Uh, the last thing, which I, I know you'll appreciate, uh, <clears throat> my last point anyway, that, that I found really interesting, but it was also extremely frustrating. Um, given my <laughs> skepticism of negativity of most coordinated programs. Um, listening to him talk and, you know, of course, you know, taking the ball and running with it. And you, you mentioned just, you know, just right now in our, in, just a couple of minutes ago about, um, uh, the, um, uh, uh, an extensive reading program where they're doing it every day, uh, kind of underscored for me how effective a coordinated program can be if it's done well. And so few of them are, obviously. That hence my skepticism. Um, but it did have me kind of like, you know, leaning back and dreaming. It's like, oh, in a perfect world. <laughs> and just imagine, just imagine a program in which, yada yada yada, um, that kind of dream, that kind of fantasy. Where ah, yes, you have that extensive reading component. You know, putting together their vocabulary and you know reinforcing structures and re using that in the fluency parts and 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 it says like oh man it could you could somebody could really do something really nice with this but no one ever does <clears throat> okay <laughs> <laughs> so i invite you all to join in my despair <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 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 interesting. I really have not very I have not met very many people who have enjoyed teaching in coordinated programs. There's well, because we're all we're all experts and we all know what we're doing. So, right, <laughs> don't That's, tell well, me how to it, teach. I think well, part of it is is that it's the egos on both sides, mm -hmm. and I understand that. If someone has a coordinated program and it's a general education class, for example, I have to teach some general education classes, I don't understand how I can argue that I have the right to structure that class any way I want. That's just the way the, the coin goes, you know, as they say. I don't need, is that even an expression? That's the way the coin goes? What, what expression am I thinking of? My, I've, been, I've been in Japan too long. <laughs> I'm already mixed. I get not mixed metaphors, mixing up phrases. Is but that's the way the cookie crumbles? It's the way the, yeah, okay, I'm not even going to, I'm not going <laughs> to go down this path. That's it. I'm not going to go down that path. But listening to Paul again, and you think, uh, you, know, well, you know, this sounds like a very sensible program. But it's, an, I think, a good example of how, one should ground their decisions that we make for what we're going to do in the classroom on research that has applications in the classroom. Hmm. And you can't really argue if the research is done well and there's really good evidence. That's part of the extensive reading is that there's a lot of evidence there. There's been a lot of studies there. But just the sense of, right, Tony, what... It's amazing if the programs yeah, were coordinated well um, and somehow found a way to 
find that happy medium between teacher autonomy mm. and the programmatic needs, there'd be some really amazing things that would go on. But again, as I think we've talked about it, I've never walked into any situation, any school that's ever hired me. And I've never, ever heard this question, which is, Charles, what are your real strong points and what can we do to help you use them the best? But now we're going off on another tangent here. But yeah, yeah but listening to Paul, I understand exactly why you were thinking that. How it's amazing what could be done, right? Because it comes back from that first comment at the very beginning, right? It's like, what can you do? It's like, well, except make a sense of reading. But I was like, ah. And you're just kind of reminded of the fact that, yeah, these kids, their whole learning experience is extends way beyond the 90 minutes that you have with them once a week. Yes. And you talk about the ego and stuff. And it's like, well, it's it, not necessarily ego, but it's certainly kind of selfishness or a certain myopia um, where, you know, we go into a classroom and, and we see our students and we overgeneralize. We think that, okay, this is this 90 minutes that I have with them. This is their education. This is their life. And it's like, that's a very small piece of that. <laughs> There's a whole, whole lot of other stuff going on and it's got nothing to do with you. Um, got nothing to do with your class. I mean, these kids are, um, their education is a big, big, big piece of pie of which yours is just a very small slice. Right. And the p slice of their life that we see, which is only 90 minutes is what we use to generalize about them. Yeah, not, not only their education, but their whole lives, right? Their family, right. their part-time jobs. Who they are. Everything. Right, but I'm saying also that it's a flip side, is that we see them for 90 minutes once a week, or I see them for 90 minutes, and suddenly that's how I know them. Yes. And that doesn't mean that's necessarily who they are, in the same way that who I am as a classroom teacher is not who I am outside of the class. Yes. Yeah, but I, I, I understand that. So the... What else did you think? So you're listening to the interview. I mean, I'm I'm talking with Paul, trying to come across as intelligent as possible, which is kind of like a, a hopeless task for me. Really found myself interested in what he was saying and then wanting to go off on these other tangents. Was there anything else that you found that were really that was interesting or you disagreed with or agreed with particularly? Um, not really. I, I, I found myself chuckling at times. Um, no pun intended, Chuck. But uh, <laughs> yeah, he's one of the few, actually. Yeah, I noticed that Paul's one of the few people who calls me Chuck. Yeah, so I was, I was <laughs> I chuckled a couple of times because because I know you so well, and listening to your questions, I know the answers that you were looking for, and he was very adept at not giving you the answers that you really wanted to hear. But and to make him any less interesting or less informative, but um, I would rephrase that by saying there were answers I was expecting. Ah, okay, so. Right, I I didn't want him to answer the questions in a certain way. Yeah, he made he made but your job a little bit harder than than you were anticipating. He did. I think. He did. <laughs> right, I thought I said, okay, I'll ask this question. So, for example, even from the and first I was, question, I was so glad it was you and not me. <laughs> well, I'm also very grateful. Paul's just a gentleman. It was it was he's no, it was a great total... great interview. I'm just glad it wasn't me. <laughs> no, I'm just saying though. But even you know, he's just such a nice guy. You know, he would never hang you out to dry. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He's one of those really really nice people. So it was a really good place for me to start the first time. But that's a good point, Tony. I started off by asking him this first question and immediately Paul goes into extensive reading and 
maybe I should have done more homework or I should have <laughs> known better. But I was actually like, I didn't expect it to go into extensive reading immediately. <laughs> right? You threw me for a loop too. Yeah, really yeah, well. yeah. So, but that made it fun. It, it, yes. It was interesting. And again, it kind of, you know, emphasized to me why I enjoyed having Paul as a, a teacher was that he just always was surprising me. You just don't get the usual answers. And, but again, I have to say thanks to Paul that he was such a gentleman about everything. Mm. So, and, and the other thing that maybe that, that's worth, and we did you talk about things that maybe like kind of worth pointing out, um, maybe under the category of nothing new under the sun. And it comes up in two different ways in this first half is like one is, um, you mentioned um, the, the current term flipped classroom. And yeah, he's like, well, he kind of poo-pooed it. It's like, well, it's not really that different. It's kind of just common sense. <laughs> kind of, kind of what we've been doing. It's just like a new label for what's going on. You know, has been going on to one to one degree or another. And then the, the kind of the flip side of, of the coin, kind of same 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 coin. Um, and if this was my question about you know, talking about the future and technology and how that's going, especially with vocabulary, and how that's going to impact education. Is that, well, I haven't really thought about that. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah, nothing new under the sun. It's like, yeah, there's you know, there's some there's some basics, and, and it, you know, he said, you know, the research is there, and it's not necessarily new research. Um, hmm, okay, again, not the answer you're expecting. <laughs> yeah, it it was it was interesting, and but again, I was expecting the response from Paul, where he he just said that the technology is a tool. Mm. Right. And that he's not one of, someone who's going to think that that's the real focus of the research. Technology is just a tool. It's a way for learning to occur. So mm -hmm. that I wasn't too surprised at. But yeah, it was, again, it was just fun. Mm, it was good. just really, really fun. And just so for our readers or listeners to know, see, that's an extensive reading kind of um, <laughs> going there, that – Tony and I spent some time trying to figure out what would be some interesting questions to ask. And we provided Paul with these are the questions we'd be interested in talking about. And again, somehow Paul managed to surprise me. And it was didn't, you know, I thought, ah, we'll ask this and we'll get this answer. We'll ask this and we'll get that answer. And mm. that is definitely not what happened. So it was fun. It was definitely yeah, fun. Good. And, and you could do the next one. Uh, well, well, but first, well, yeah, well, actually, we do have a couple other interviews, and I'm still working on on that guy. I'm still working on that guy. But um, we have the second half of this interview later in the year, right? Um, and uh, talk a little bit, kind of folks, a little bit more like on on research questions and, and things like that. So that's something to look forward to. But I think that pretty much buttons up this half i think anything else that you wanted to add on that no i think i'm done no. okay. um, i think I'm, I'm well done all right all so, right, so. <clears throat> everybody's everybody's busy you're busy i'm busy and uh, our listeners are i'm sure very busy because uh yeah that new semester is beginning Laura, it's officially the beginning of the new school year april 1st there we go i always laugh that it's april fools when school starts here well laugh or cry <laughs> I'm, be I'm becoming convinced they're the same thing at this time in my life. So, okay. It's true. Tony, thanks a lot. There we go. Thank you. We'll talk to and you soon. And thank you, Paul. And thank you very much, Paul. See you. Yeah. Bye.